The briefing is brought to you in association with the Sustainable Cities in Action Forum at Expo City Dubai. The Sustainable Cities in Action Forum at Expo City Dubai is a place for city leaders, developers, architects and designers to come together and innovate for the future of urban spaces. It's an opportunity for the Global South to convene in the Global South. It's a testbed for real-world solutions that will shape the future of people and planet. You can hear from the innovative thinkers and inspirational voices that drove the narrative at this year's edition by listening to Monocle's special episodes of The Briefing, recorded live at Expo City Dubai in March. Find and listen to the shows now at monocle.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The Sustainable Cities in Action Forum 2024. Collaborate. Innovate. Transform. You are listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 31st of January, 2024, on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing. We're live from Studio One here at Midori House in London, and I'm Chris Chermak. Coming up on today's program... I don't think we need a wider war in the Middle East. That's not what I'm looking for. Joe Biden considers his options in the Middle East. We'll have the latest. Then Pakistan's Imran Khan gets a second jail sentence in as many days. And Monocle's Fernando Augusto Pacheco is here to bring us a spying scandal from Brazil. Hello, Chris. Today we unpack the latest on uh, this precise Brazil spying probe and the impact of it for Brazil's political class. Thanks very much, Faye. We'll also be talking about democracy and disinformation with International Idea, an NGO, and we'll check in with our Monocle team at the Copenhagen International Fashion Fair. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Chris Chermak. U.S. President Joe Biden says that he's made a decision about how to respond to an attack on American troops in Jordan, but he hasn't said exactly what that decision is. He also hasn't said exactly which of the myriad Iran-backed groups in the region is responsible for the assault that killed three U.S. soldiers and wounded many others. Well, Holly Dagris is a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and editor of the Iran Source blog. She joins us now from Washington, D.C., Holly, do you get the sense that the U.S. and Biden know what they want to do here, or are they still buying some time? Um, Well, I think that one of the things we've noted is that they are certainly taking their time on this. Um, It's been a few days since the attack on Sunday. Um, But I think that it's because they're weighing their options. Um, Some of these options include um, hitting Iranian assets in Iraq and Syria, Iranian naval assets, the possibility of additional sanctions on Iran, particularly those um, entities that are affiliated with the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. And of course, cyber attacks. So there's there's a list of um, options that the United States have. Um, and of course, as um, some listeners may be aware, there's also been Republicans in Washington that have been calling for actual strikes on Iran, which is definitely not something the Biden administration's considering. Well, given all of those responses as you lay them out, I just wonder if there's anything that might have an effect on that coming from Iran or from these Iran-backed groups. One in Iraq, for example, saying that they will halt attacks. Iran, of course, itself calling for diplomacy. Is any of that likely to have an effect on the response? 
Well, actions speak louder than words. Um, Kataib Hezbollah is the group that you're mentioning, and they are said to be responsible for Sunday's attack that killed three U.S. service members. And so it's almost as if they regret poking the bear. And so just because they're making the statement, and they've also distanced Iran indirectly in another one of their statements, saying that they had made this decision on their own to take action in northeastern Jordan. But... um, it's clear that they are very unsettled by the the potential of a big U.S. response, and this is them walking back on their bad behavior. And to what extent is that believable, just to, to follow up on that? To what extent does Iran sort of have operational control, do you feel, over these groups in the region? Iran itself also, of course, insists it was not involved in these attacks. Is it possible that this group acted without Iran's knowledge? Well, Iran always claims plausible deniability, um, and I do believe that these groups do have their own agency, but um, I think that they all share a common denominator here, which is that their modus operandi is that they want U.S. troops out of the region, out of Iraq and Syria, and this is in part why they take these actions. Well, and then given that, to look at the U.S. response, I mean, what is your sense of how big they kind of want to go there and how aware Joe Biden also from our introduction, you know, saying he doesn't want a war in the Middle East? How, how aware is the U.S. of the danger of a, of a major ex- escalation here? Well, I think the fact that you have the president of the United States himself saying he does not want a war with Iran, and we've heard some of his administration say the same thing. I think there's a recognition since the October 7th attack um, by the terrorist group Hamas on Israel that, you know, that the region is in turmoil. There's been um, unrest um, on the border with Lebanon. There's been the actions by the Houthi rebels in Yemen. And of course, there's been at least 160 attacks on U.S. forces in the region by Iran-backed Shia militias. So, I mean, I I think there's a sense that they recognize that if they um, push buttons, that this could potentially um, lead to an all-out war. And what those buttons would be, the most extreme case, of course, being actually um, hitting Iran on Iranian soil. So, and then as I noted earlier, I don't think this is a possibility and something they're considering at all, despite um, some of the rhetoric from Republicans in Washington. So that might not be the major possibility. I wonder if you could talk a little more then of what your sense is of where this does go from here for the U.S. then. I mean, what, as you mentioned there, there have been so many attacks from various groups on the U.S., the U.S. has responded in more limited fashion, limited strikes against Houthis in Yemen and others. None of that seems to be working. I mean, is there a sense in D.C. at this point that they need to send some other kind of message, do something different in order to get this to stop? Well, I think the message here is that the Iran policy of the Biden administration has not been successful, and that seems to be the overall Overwhelming sense here in Washington. Um, Harvard recently did a poll, just came out in mid-January. It's a monthly poll that they do with U.S. voters, and it said that two out of three 
Americans believe that the administration's Iran policy hasn't been working. And so I think they have to recognize that what they're doing on Iran, whether it's in the context of protesting Iran, like we saw with the Women Life Freedom uprising that began in September 2022, to the situation with Iran proxies, that they really need to reassess how they deal with Iran moving forward, that this isn't the Iran of the JCPOA of 2015, it's the Iran of 2024. That's an absolutely fair point. But then following on from that, I suppose, do you, do you have any sense that there are any kind of talks at this point between Iran and the U.S., even if JCPOA and all of that is dead at this point? What can these two countries do to kind of avoid a, a bigger escalation here? What kind of contacts might we expect these two to be having? Um, well, just based off of history, there could be messages being passed through European diplomats or um, diplomats from um, Arab countries in the Persian Gulf, such as Oman, um, if that is kind of the de-escalation that, um, or diplomacy that Tehran's proposing. So that could be kind of where things are going, but there's not been any public indication that that's the case. I think that everyone's just bracing just to see how the U.S. responds right now. Well, and then just finally on that, Holly, do we have any sense of when and any kind of response might come at this point? Um, I, I think that um, it, it should be a matter of days. The last time we had such a serious incident was at the end of December 2019, when a U.S. contractor and U.S. service member was killed. Um, then on January 3rd, 2020, the United States assassinated Quds Force Commander Qasem Soleimani and Popular Mobilization Forces Commander um, Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis. And that took about a week. So uh, I assume that any day now you're going to be, by the probably by Sunday, you'll be seeing some sort of response. Thanks very much, Holly. We will, of course, continue to follow this story. That was Holly Dagras in Washington. Now here's Vincent McAvinney with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Chris. Thailand's Move Forward party could be forced to dissolve after a court found its key policy violated the constitution. Ahead of last year's election, the pro-democracy group campaigned on a promise to change the country's strict royal defamation laws. Farmers in Belgium have blocked key roads into Brussels as part of a protest against rising costs, EU regulation and cheap food imports. The demonstration follows days of action by agricultural workers in neighbouring France. Cheetah Rivera, the Broadway star best known for playing Anita in the musical West Side Story, has died aged 91. Known as a skilled actor, singer and dancer, Rivera received a Lifetime Tony Award in 2018. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Chris. Thanks very much, Vinny. Now, if this next segment feels a bit like deja vu, you would not be wrong. Pakistan's former prime minister, Imran Khan, has been sentenced to jail for 14 years. It's his second jail sentence in as many days. And it comes just one week before elections are due to take place in the country. Well, Amber Shamsi is a political commentator and director of Pakistan's Center for Excellence in Journalism. She joins me now. Amber, what differentiates today's sentencing from yesterday's? Uh, thank you for having me on the show to talk about a huge story in Pakistan today. And I think what the, one of the big differences, there's a couple of differences, actually. So uh, it isn't just Imran Khan uh, who has been convicted uh, today uh, for violating um, Tosha Khana rules or gift rules. Uh, it's a corruption case, but also his wife. 
who is known as Bushra Bibi, um, and she is also has been accused of violating rules governing state gifts that uh, uh, the Pakistani uh, government gets. Uh, they've both been accused of either keeping state gifts, which violates those rules, without informing um, the repository that keeps those gifts, or in Imran Khan's case, uh, for selling, un undervaluing that gift, selling it at a high price, and not disclosing uh, the money that he made from that, uh, uh, from that um, sale. Um, so the one big difference is his wife has also been convicted. He's been obviously barred, already barred from uh, contesting elections. I think the other key difference between yesterday's sentencing and today's is that uh, Imran Khan um, rose to power on the rhetoric or these uh, or, uh, of freeing Pakistan of corruption, and I think that uh, this will not damage his supporters' view and perception of Imran Khan as an honest leader. However. Um, it is, um, I think, I feel a little ironic that a man who um, was accused of uh, accused others and especially his opponents of corruption and selling Pakistan um, and celebrated any convictions against his opponents while he was in power or uh, rising to power is now has all has now also been convicted of uh, under corruption charges. Well, Amber, to follow up on that first point, first of all, his wife, Bushra Bibi, as you mentioned there, tell us a little more about kind of what her role has been in government and since he left power. What, how is her role described and her role also in this case? Well, first of all, uh, Bushra Bibi, Imran Khan's wife, has been very private, has kept away from the media. She is his third wife. Uh, and uh, she uh, covers herself fully, the Islamic uh, uh, nijab, uh, hijab, I would say, um, and has given only one media interview when Imran Khan came into power uh, in 2018. Um, she has done a lot of philanthropic philanthropic work, but I think what's also been interesting is, is the kind of sort of uh, accusations that are made against her. Um, in recent times, especially once Imran Khan was out of power. Uh, she's been described as a magic lady of sorts, as a voodoo lady, uh, because she is uh, somebody who uh, is considered to be very spiritual. She's considered a kind of guru in her area among followers. Um, a kind of, she has many, many disciples, in fact. Um, her marriage to Imran Khan was also under a bit of a cloud. She was already married with children when she um, divorced and married Imran Khan. That's another case that's against the two. Um, but also, um, I think that there's a lot of sort of, uh, as is the case in many sort of third world countries, perhaps, is a very sort of sexist attacks that Imran Khan's fall from grace is due to his third wife, Bushra Bibi, who is um, considered a spiritual guru of sorts, who covers herself, who's private, but who's also had a keen interest in politics or advice from the sidelines. Uh, many um, reports from within the PTI circles was uh, have spoken about her interest, but never anything direct. So I think um, Imran Khan's life as a cricketer, uh, his his marriages have been obviously as a celebrity, uh, as a politician, have been under scrutiny for many many years, uh, and his his choice of third wife I think um, has. Um, uh, has also obviously been, a, there's been a lot of comment on that. Um, and it also sort of correlates with his own um, um, sort of increasing um, embrace of, of Islam, I, I think, sort of correlates with his own personal journey. Uh, but I think there's been a lot of sort of sexist commentary against his wife as, as being him, her being responsible for his downfall. 
Well, then, Amber, to put the responsibility back on Imran Khan, uh, I just wonder, he has, of course, also charged political motivations in all of this. I wonder to what extent he is right, if at all. It is, of course, the timing of this just ahead of an election. What is the kind of view there about the role of the current government, the elections being involved in, in these cases coming so soon before Pakistan heads to the polls? Uh, There's no doubt that um, whenever a political leader is in power, they seem to be immune uh, from many um, uh, cases that could be brought against them, um, with the exception of the last uh, two prime ministers before that, Nawaz Sharif, uh, who is in the running for elections this time. uh, He was convicted while he was still in power. But I think uh, the fast tracking of many of the cases, and there are dozens of cases against Imran Khan. We just spoke of two in which uh, we've heard sentencing. Uh, But there's dozens of cases against Imran Khan. And just so close to the elections uh, actually validates the Pakistan Tariq Insaf and his party's position uh, that there is a a campaign to keep his party and Imran Khan out of the public eye and in jail and his party uh, on the run or at least up against the ropes in terms of the elections. one important case against the party was that their uh, symbol was taken away from them. In a country like Pakistan, where many voters rely on a symbol to vote for the party that they want to, um, it was a huge blow to the Pakistan Tehreek Insaf, and many of their candidates are now running as independents with their own separate symbols, which complicates things a little bit. Uh, so I think that really it, uh, there's there, there have been many complaints on behalf of the Pakistan Tehreek Insaf that they're have not been fully allowed to freely campaign, um, that they, uh, yeah, that there's been pressure to withdraw candidature from, uh, you know, many of their um, uh, potential uh, sort of uh, uh, candidates as well um, by the military establishment. So I think, and in law enforcement. So I think it really goes to the whole idea that once Imran Khan, who um, was a, I would say, in, in favor in the good books of the military establishment, fell out of the good books of the military establishment. Um, his party is now really struggling uh, to fully compete in a credible election. Amber Shamsi, thank you very much for joining us. You are listening to The Briefing on Monaco Radio. You are back with The Briefing on Monocle Radio. I'm Chris Chermak. Now to Brazil, which is in the middle of a rather intriguing spying scandal. President Luis Inácio Lula da Silva has fired his deputy intelligence chief this week. And the probe also implicates the son of former president Jair Bolsonaro. Well, our senior correspondent, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, can tell us more about this. Fade, there are a lot of moving parts here. Let's start with Bolsonaro's son. What is his role? Well, there are a lot of moving parts indeed. So basically, Chris, the scandal broke last week uh, when the Supreme Court unveiled some documents which proved that Brazil's intelligence agency, which is called ABIN, uh, they were indeed spying on some of Jair Bolsonaro's enemies uh, while in power. Uh, But earlier this week, I mean, one of 
the people that is involved in this case is Carlos Bolsonaro, which is, of course, one of Jair Bolsonaro's son. Uh, apparently, he was directly involved with that and, you know, probably helping uh, his father in a way. So they raided his house and office. He was not in his house at the time. And from what I understand, from what the Brazilian media is reporting, he was, uh, I think, on a fishing trip with his dad or something like that. Maybe he knew what was going on. I'm not too sure about that. But yes, yeah, quite, quite a big scandal there. It is. And, and talk about Lula's response uh, so far. There's been various firings of various department heads and also this deputy intelligence chief. What were they accused of? Yeah, first of all, I was confused reading the Brazilian press because at the beginning they were saying that, you know, this would change anyway, right? So they, he would change the members of the intelligence agency. And apparently the deputy, uh, he was considered a bolsonarista. But then, of course, in more recent reports, they're saying, well, precisely because of this probe on this uh, illegal involvement of the intelligence agency, Solula had to do something. Uh, So Alessandro Moretti, the deputy and other four department heads, they were fired. Uh, So now there's a new team coming over. We don't have the names yet. But from what I understand, four of them will be women, which... It's great. Uh, but yeah, so clearly Alessandro Moretti was very close to the Bolsonaro family. And I think Lula had to make a few changes with that. So is this, in that sense, also to follow up a, a case of sort of trying to root out, if you will, members of the former government and what they may have been doing before even Lula came to office? Yes. And I think there's a perception uh, with the government that are being uh, the intelligence agencies perhaps a bit too close to Bolsonaro. And those things, they take time to change. Of course, you know, some of the top heads are going to be changed, but I wonder if all the members of the staff. So that's why I think this is a story that we'll we'll have new updates as the story moves along. Well, and what kind of impact does it have, do you think, on Jair Bolsonaro himself? He's been relatively quiet uh, since since the last election. He, of course, had sort of accused that there were irregularities in that election, but then he kind of went away. Do you get any sense that he might be coming back? Could this impact his chances of doing that? Well, I, I think Bolsonaro is a much weaker character, uh, perhaps more than what actually I thought he would be. Uh, first of all, as we know, Chris, he can't be a candidate for eight years. So we're going to see Bolsonaro Bolsonaro on the ballot only 2030. He can campaign uh, for his favorite candidates, and I'm sure, I mean, he's plenty of sons. They will be, I mean, Carlos Bolsonaro, forgot to say, he is a counselor for the city of Rio de Janeiro, uh, so he can campaign for, for his kids. But it is very different, for example, what, than what you see in the United States, where Trump is still a very powerful character. Bolsonaro, much weaker. I think, uh, you know, th- he still has kind of probably the like 20% of the Brazilian electorate. Uh, but it's going to be very hard to see him in a strong position like president or even governor in the future. Is that because only because he's weak? Or what? what is the sense, I guess, of how President Lula is doing at this point? There was a, something else we were talking about earlier, that there's tr- this Transparency International Corruption Perceptions Index. Brazil has fallen in that index with Lula in charge. What's the sense of what he's been doing? Yeah, let's definitely mention uh, that thing that you mentioned about Lula. But the thing with Bolsonaro is not that Brazil is turning left or right. I think it is a question about his character. Even some of his voters understand that he was 
was perhaps not suitable for the role. But, you know, we have to wait. If there is another charismatic leader from the right, I do think you could give a competition to Lula. But it's interesting. Let's talk about this thing about how you ask me how Lula is doing. So Brazil dropped 10 places in the Transparency International ranking, of which is the corruption perception, which is very bad news for the government. But then I was looking at the reasons. I mean, one of the reasons is the hang-ups from uh, the Bolsonaro era uh, that, of course, Brazil you know, was perceived as even more corrupt, actually, when Bolsonaro was in power. Those things, they take time. That was only one of the reasons. There's one that actually, I we can blame Lula for that, that is his appointments to the Supreme Court. So one of his appointments was Cristiano Zanin, which is his private and personal lawyer. Uh, so, of course... Uh, He's really playing up with this kind of politics in the Supreme Court. And I think that's, that, that is another one of the reasons as well that Brazil perhaps might have followed these 10 places. A lot of hangovers from Bolsonaro's presidency. Fernando Augusto Pacheco, thank you very much for joining us. You're listening to The Briefing on Monaco Radio. This is The Briefing with me, Chris Chermak. It is a year of major elections across the world. The United States is, of course, leading the way in November, but a record 4 billion people will head to the polls this year. And pro-democracy organizations are warning not only of the threat to democracy in general, but of disinformation and digital threats that could impact media coverage and voters' perceptions. Well, Alberto Fernandez Hibaja is head of the Digitalization and Democracy Program at the International Institute for Democracy and Electoral Assistance, or International IDEA. It's an intergovernmental organization that supports democratic institutions worldwide. Alberto, we'll get to some of the recommendations uh, from a report you've released or a policy report you've released, uh, but let's start with just what's the biggest problem facing voters in your mind? Thank you, Chris. Um, that's the million dollar question. And ironically, being in charge of the work of uh, international idea on digitalization, I will go away from digitalization and think the biggest risk that um, voters are facing today is actually electing, elect, electing uh, leaders that are not loyal to democracy. That's That's our bigger risk. What technology is doing is sadly facilitating um, the election of these type of leadership. Well, that is that is kind of the point, isn't it? This interlink between the two, who we are electing, but also how we go about electing them, what kind of information voters are getting about their candidates. I do wonder in that sense for you, what your sense is of kind of what sort of disinformation is most prevalent at the moment in that? Is it sort of... Uh, somewhat authoritarian-leaning groups targeting specific candidates or specific policies or just against elections and voting in general? I think we are seeing both. We are seeing on one side a general attack to what some academics know, um, call common political knowledge. These common ideas that we all in democracies have, regardless of, of uh, ideologies even that they transcend our constitution or our legal framework. Ideas like it is not uh, admissible to use violence to gain or to stick to power. It is not admissible to not concede defeat. It is not admissible to use um, majoritarian rule, the, the power of a majority, to suppress minority rights. 
part of the disinformation or, or the distortion of the information environment, I would, say, I would think it's more accurate, that we are seeing goes towards that, towards attacking those common political knowledge, common political agreements that we all have, and, and that, or in principle, that we all have in a democracy. The second part is clearly um, direct attacks to particular candidates or particular political parties. And those, it's a little bit more difficult to understand um, if we just look at one particular attack to one particular party, but it's more useful to think about frameworks, to think about these attacks tend to be, the intention of these attacks tend to be to create a framework to, to help or manipulate the way people make sense of politics and give them this preset set of ideas in which they will, no matter what, um, move towards certain uh, ideas or identity or, or ideology. So um, that will be, for instance, uh, we have seen how the same groups that have been um, putting into the global narrative ideas against migration have coincidentally be the same groups that are putting ideas against vaccination and the same groups that are putting ideas, for instance, in the European Union against the role of the European Union. And, and they seem to be colliding. They seem to be the same people. And that's probably because it's not a matter of an attack to a particular politician. What what this information has done to these people is to change the way they interpret the world. And that change in the way they interpret the world makes them choose certain facts uh, over others. Um, and that's that's what distorting our information environment, which is which is a fundamental piece of democracy. And what is your sense of how voters, I suppose, understand what is happening? Disinformation is something we talk about a lot, frankly, in the media. What are voters' perceptions of this? Do they imagine it's sort of not happening to them? Um, are they aware of it, but thinking it happens to others? Where, where do voters fit into this, their awareness, their education of what's happening? That's a very good question. Um, in principle and in theory, and what we have observed through the little data that we have access to, is that voters are aware of this uh, phenomenon. Voters tend to be quite resilient to disinformation uh, or attempts to disinform disinform um, them, and those who believe everything that they see on the internet, to, to put it in a very simplistic way, uh, tend to be a minority. It tend to be just a very small minority. The problem with uh, the way uh, information moves around the internet is that that minority becomes very noisy and very preeminent. And that's because, not because this minority is very good at communication, it's because the way the business model of social media companies awards that type of behaviors, the ranking algorithms that decide what goes on top of my Instagram feed, of my TikTok feed, of my any media, any social media feed, seeks to give you things that engage you. And that might be fine for selling you uh, clothes. But when it comes to politics, those fringe ideas, those ideas that are very polemic, that, that, that cross certain red lines in society, those are the ideas that engage us the most. Not because we agree, just because we find them outreach, outreaches or we just have curiosity about 
how can it be somebody thinking that the earth is not flat it's not uh, round <laughs> sorry um so it is a minority but that minority has been amplified massively by the business model of social media companies Alberto Fernandez Hibaja, thank you very much for joining us. You are listening to The Briefing on Monaco Radio. Well, finally, on today's show, it is time to head over to the Copenhagen International Fashion Fair, or SIF. Our design editor, Nick Manis, is among a slew of Monaco crew who is in Copenhagen for this. Nick, uh, welcome to the show. We heard from the organizer on this morning's Globalist. Tell us about SIF from your perspective. Why has it become such a staple of the fashion fairs? I mean, great question. I mean, I just want to point out primarily the reason I'm here is to uh, hopefully be scouted as a model. But I guess second, secondary to that is uh, also to obviously cover and unpack, uh, I guess, fashion trends, what's coming next in the world of design, uh, and, and really, I guess, I guess, try and get a gauge or a feel for yeah, the, the direction of, of fashion and, and design more broadly in, in 2024. So SIF is... Uh, obviously based in, in Copenhagen, but it's bringing in everything from accessories to footwear to women's wear to men's wear to kids' wear uh, and, and beyond. So really just, I guess this is a chance to, to talk and connect with designers and, and, and brand representatives. And what is your sense of how SIF has grown in the last few years, aside from your own fashion modeling campaign? I mean, uh, yeah, thank you again for, for bringing that up. I just want to make sure that's front and centre. But uh, this, this is a fair that was established in 1993. Uh, and I think, I think maybe the comment here is more about Copenhagen more broadly and the, and the role that it plays as a, as a design hub, not just for, for fashion, but also for furniture as well. I mean, really, it has become uh, both fashion and, and furniture-wise, its, its design weeks really are uh, something that everyone has on their calendar, that, do, that they do have on their agenda. I mean, SIF itself is, is running alongside Copenhagen Fashion Week, so you've got a, a trade fair, but also runway shows taking place, which I guess as a combination has sort of really made this uh, a, a key destination. Uh, and, and I guess some of the, the people I've talked to already today, I've, I've talked to Rebecca Bay, who's the creative director at the Finnish brand Marimekko. I've talked to Bruce Pask, who's the senior editorial director of uh, Neiman Marcus in the US, uh, and 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 in both of those conversations, I guess we talked about the link uh, that that or the, the cultural link that Copenhagen as as a city has to uh, I guess a creative scene here and and at, as an export opportunity. So that's that's really a, a common theme that has run through a lot of the conversations. It's it's how this city, whether it's its lighting, its landscape, its quality of life, uh, informs the work of, of the designers here and, and the brands that, that want to show here because really it is a, a perfect setting it's it's a place where there's a, a strong emphasis on design a strong emphasis on quality uh, and, and a strong emphasis on manufacturing and that's that's really celebrated and being put to the fore here at the fair it is of course a place that we here at monocle love as well tell us a little more about monocle's plans during sif what you're doing there you mentioned some of the people you're interviewing you have quite an impressive setup over there what's what's going what's on your schedule we do. It's, a, it's an amazing setup here. So we've, we've got a pop-up radio studio that really, uh, I guess, looks like an authentic replica of, of one of our, our cafes uh, where, you know, people across the globe stop into them and they're in, they're in a lot of major hubs. But we've, we've now got a temporary hub here in Copenhagen. Uh, so you can come uh, listen to the Monocle team. I'm, I'm here. Natalie Theodosia, our fashion editor, will be here as well. Uh, and, and Tom Webb, our deputy head of radio. You can, you can stop by and listen to us uh, talking to a host of names. I mean, I mentioned... Uh, 
uh, obviously Marimekko and Neiman Marcus there, but we've also got uh, some of the team behind Ganny coming down. Uh, we've got, uh, I'm going to go uh, take a look at Snow Peak and do a, a walkthrough of, of their stand as well. So we're also out in amongst the fair. You'll see our microphones. Uh, yeah, sort of talking and engaging with designers and, and hopefully uh, helping us establish what the agenda uh, is uh, for 2024 and, and the world of fashion. Nick Manis, Monocle's Design Editor, thank you very much for joining us. Do check in on future shows for plenty of SIF coverage going forward. That is all the time we have, though, for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Lillian Fawcett and Vincent McAvinney. Our researcher was Neoma Akwe, and our studio manager was Steph Changu. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. I'm Chris Jermek. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. <laughs>